We'll turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And let us pray. Father, thank you for just the time we have had in, in singing to thee and praising thee. And, and again, I just I thank you for each one that is here and just the privilege we have to worship a great and glorious God that you are. I would pray again for the, the help of your Holy Spirit uh, during these moments together to rely on, on you to communicate your word. And I pray it would be in a way that's reflective of your intention. I, I pray that you would illuminate all of our hearts and all of our minds to uh, embrace it and to glory in it. I, I pray it would be um, strengthening to our hearts and encouraging as we would seek to live the Christian life for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last uh, Lord's Day, our focus was on Hebrews chapter 2 and, and verse 9. And we saw that it brings out the significance uh, of our Lord's death in two different ways. First of all, um, it presents our Lord's death as a prelude to his exaltation. Um, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. So his atoning death is presented as a necessary preparation for his exaltation. It's important to realize um, the connection between his death and his exaltation. It is chronological, but, but that's not the fundamental point. The, the fundamental point is it's consequential. Uh, his death had to happen in order for him to be exalted. His death was the ground or the basis for his being crowned with glory and honor. But then we also saw that his death is presented as being the goal of his humiliation, the reason why he came into this world and the reason why he took on human form and the reason he subjected himself to the indignities which he did. The text tells us he was made for a little while. That's the humility. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, his humanity that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. So his death is presented here as the goal of his humiliation. Now, verse 10, it's an amplification and clarification of the, the end of verse 9, that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. And it especially makes the point that the humility and the death of Christ was fitting for God to accomplish his saving purposes for man that this was fitting for God to accomplish his saving purposes for man. As one put it, the sufferings of Jesus were appropriate to the goal to be attained and were experienced with God's fixed purpose. Uh, Ellingworth in his work wrote, Jesus' humiliation and death together with his exaltation have the right and proper place in God's purpose. So in this transition from verses 9 to 10, um, and the inclusion of this term fitting or appropriate, it implies that one might ask this question. 
was there another way for God the Father to reconcile his people to himself other than the suffering of his son? Is this the only option that he had open to himself? Did it have to happen this way? And this morning, I simply want to invite you to think with me why the humiliation and death of Christ were a fitting or appropriate means for God to accomplish this salvation. So I want to offer four reasons why such is the case. Number one, the humiliation and death of Christ were a fitting means for God to accomplish salvation because that's what the text says. That's the clear meaning of the text. Uh, the import of the verse is it was fitting or suitable for God the Father to bring many sons to glory by perfecting the author of their salvation through suffering. And um, as we noted, there there may be those who have questions about the propriety of God's actions here. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says there are many who are ready to tell us confidently what God would and would not be worthy of God. So there's no shortage of opinions that people have about what God should or what God should not do. You have probably found that to be the case. There are some who might even say, you know, I would consider biblical Christianity if God was different than he was. If God was just loving, I'd be okay with it. But because you know, God is a God of wrath or God would cast people into hell, then I, I can't embrace that kind of a gospel. I, I, I can't adhere to that sort of a religious system. Of course, our response to those kinds of people is that our understanding of his character, it's never formed by those whose hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's not where we go to get our understanding of what God is like. Rather, we go to Holy Scripture, and there he reveals to us his character, his nature, and his ways. Now, there may be others um, who just questions God, God's method. Peter O'Brien wrote, the notion of a crucified Lord was a scandal to the first century world, Crucifixion was a, a public form of execution, and its cruelty was well known. For Jews, death by crucifixion meant that a person was under the curse of God, while pagans protested that it was sheer madness. But in spite of the offensive nature of Jesus' suffering and death, that is precisely the way God has worked, and Hebrews gives it a central place. It was fitting that God should effect his glorious saving purpose through suffering, through the death of Christ. I'd have you note under this first heading, uh, this term fitting means to be what is proper, what's marked by suitable, rightness, or appropriate. The same term is applied to our Lord as it relates to his saving purposes. In in chapter 7 and verse 26, it says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It was appropriate, it was fitting to have a high priest that was holy and undefiled to accomplish the saving purposes which were set before him. And in, in chapter 2, in verse 17, it uses a term that's very close in meaning. It's translated had to be. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Over in the, the margin, it says more of a literal translation, he was obligated to. So it's the same idea of a suitable, except a bit more forceful, has the force of moral obligation. If he was to be the propitiation for the sins of his people, he had to die, and he had to die in a particular way. Back in Mark 8.31, it uses a, a, another different term that's very close in meaning uh, to the idea of suitable. It's translated must, or it means necessary. Let me just read the verse to you. This is from Mark 
31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must, it's necessary, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So it was absolutely necessary, had to happen, for Jesus to suffer many things and be rejected and die on the cross and be raised again from the dead. So these terms are very closely related in meaning the idea of suitable, obligated, necessary, and it makes it clear, I believe, that God had no other option. Uh, the only way that man could be recovered and redeemed is by the suffering and the substitutionary death of his son. Um, I, I might add here, having a correct understanding of messiahship, this is a bit of application, uh, having a correct understanding of messiahship gives us a correct understanding of discipleship. James Edwards wrote on the passage I read in Mark, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. But what characterizes one characterizes the other. Uh, to reread what I read in Mark chapter 8, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we read the next verse. Peter went kind of quasi-ballistic over this, and he opposed him vehemently. He says, he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So, so Peter, he's thinking wrongly here about God and, and his ways. And he's thinking wrongly about Messiahship and what it would cost the Lord to accomplish his purposes. So in the very next verse, Jesus said he summoned, says he summoned the, the multitudes with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me so the dynamics connected with messiahship help us to understand the dynamics that are connected with discipleship and being a follower of the person of christ in john 15 20 jesus said if they persecuted me they will persecute you so a first reason why the humiliation and death of Christ is a fitting means for God to accomplish the salvation of his people is because that's what the text says. That's the main overall point of the text. Secondly, the humiliation and death of Christ were a fitting means of accomplishing salvation because it comports with the character of God. It fits in with the character of God that is revealed here. We read that it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all our things. This is a, the language of doxology. It's reflected in Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Philip Hughes wrote that the fittingness of the divine action in Christ is suggested to begin with by the manner in which God is designated here as he for whom and by whom all things exist. As one well observes, this designation describes God as both the efficient cause by whom and the final cause for whom of all things. All creation flows from God and all creation flows to God. So in this connection, I might just add three different thoughts. The first is this, this exalted, lofty view of God immediately impresses upon our minds the rightness or the suitableness or the appropriateness of God's action in, in saving man. He's not a God who's flying by the seat of his pants, who's making things up as he goes, who's in some kind of a panic mode, getting counsel from other people. This is the one who is the efficient cause and the final cause of all things. It really fits in with the concept of the sovereignty of God that we read about in Daniel chapter 4 in verse 35 
and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of men. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done or what are you doing? This is a God who is all powerful, who is fully present in all places at all times. His understanding is infinite. He's incomparably good. So, so this activity is right and suitable because it comports with the character of this kind of a God in his designs. Well, then, secondly, this action, it's suitable and fitting because God, it, it brings out that God accomplishes his purposes in spite of the sinful activity of man. God accomplishes his purposes in spite of the, the sinful activity of man. Jesus, as one wrote, Jesus suffered at the hands of guilty sinners. That does not alter the fact that it's in accordance with his design and his purpose. Another wrote, though he suffered and died by the hands of lawless men, nonetheless, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he was delivered up. A few weeks ago, I made reference to a verse in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he's nailed to a cross by ungodly evil men, and they're responsible for their actions. Nevertheless, such evil action does not impinge at all upon the fact that this is a redemptive accomplishment that's in accordance with God's predetermined plan. And then thirdly, I might just include in our thinking here, this description of God, which really underscores in our minds the, the suitableness of the action of Christ, it's the very reason that he's the object of our praise and trust and adoration. The whole idea that he is the sustainer of all things, the creator of all things, that, that's the reason we praise him and the reason we worship him. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we read that the Levites and many others said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above the blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before thee. Also in the book of Revelation, worthy art thou, our Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they, were, they existed and were created. Well, number three, the humiliation and death of Christ were a fitting means for God to accomplish salvation because it accomplishes the purpose of God. It accomplishes the purpose of God. Here, it's bringing many sons to glory. So the sufferings of Christ culminating in the cross, it's the God-ordained method of fulfilling this great purpose of bringing many sons to glory. It's the only means by which many sons could be brought to glory. As one put it, God's fixed purpose is to bring many sons to glory, a bit redundant. Three subsidiary thoughts here. The first one related to this term glory, one commentary wrote, is to enter, to enter the glory of the heavenly homeland prepared for them. William Lane, the reference is to the heritage reserved for the redeemed in the world to come. And a bit more expansive, Peter O'Brien, the glory that God's sons and daughters have as their destiny is that which, is that, that which the Son had from all eternity and with which he was crowned in his exaltation. Um, in Jewish and Christian writings, glory denotes the divine power and presence to enter God's glory is to enter the sphere of God's presence is where, where God's presence is manifest. And this life 
This signifies life everlasting with him. So it's a place where there's an unmistakable manifestation of the presence of the being of God and an enjoyment of that. Isaiah 16:19 makes the point, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for glory. So it's, a, it's glorious because there's this ongoing, unrestricted, uninterrupted realization of, of the pure, majestic being of God, and this will be forever. So this is the anticipation of the regenerate heart in Romans 5, 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. It's the anticipation of the regenerate heart, not only because of what we perceive, but because of what we will become. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, so also is the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown a weakness, it is raised in power. It's raised an imperishable body, it's raised in power, it's raised in glory. Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And one other thought, after you have suffered for a little while, 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we can elaborate on the wonderful import of uh, this purpose in two different respects. Number one, the language underscores here, I believe, the eternal safety of the soul. The language brings out the eternal safety of the soul, and that's simply because God Almighty is acting here in bringing many sons to glory. He's the one who's making it happen here. He's making it happen for those for whom Christ died, for those who will inherit salvation in chapter 1 and verse 14. It really harmonizes, I believe, two verses here from Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we see here that all, not some or not most, but all who are predestined are glorified. All who are predestined are, are called, and all who are called are justified, and all who are justified are glorified. And the certainty is seen in that glorified is presented in the past tense as, as having already happened. I know, at least from my own mind, uh, an illustration that I, I find helpful, maybe it's because I'm from Tacoma, so I, I picture a fifth grade teacher um, going to go for an outing to Point Defiance Park on Thursday at um, 8 o'clock in the morning, and they leave on a bus. They're on a bus. She has 22 students, and they go to the zoo and see the polar bear and everything, and then at 3 o'clock they return to the school. She's concerned about two things. Number one, that there's 22 students on the bus. Number two, it's the same 22 students that she left with in the morning. It has to be the same. And that, that's really the idea here. It's all who are predestined will be glorified. It's impossible that any will be lost along the way because it's the almighty, powerful God that is accomplishing this. He who began a good work in you, Scott read it, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And also the language employed here, bringing many sons to glory, reveals 
not only the eternal safety of the soul, but, but the great blessing of being adopted into the family of God. The term sons is used here, who are brought to glory. Second Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're adopted also. We become sons and daughters by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the, the catechism asks the question, what is adoption? What's this all about? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby all those who are justified are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. One wrote, spiritual adoption is that act by which God receives sinners into his family and gives them a right to all the privileges of his children. That's much of the glory of salvation right there. He receives sinners, undeserving sinners into his family, and they receive all the privileges of children. But also there's a spirit or disposition. There's a, a sense of having been brought into the family and it's a different view of God the Father. And now I just don't see him as God that might cast unregenerate people into hell, but rather this is a God that I can draw near to, that I can worship, I can praise, I can trust. Robert Shaw wrote, they receive the spirit of adoption. The spirit implants in them the dispositions of children and transforms them into the image of God's dear son. He witnesses with their spirits that they are the sons of God. He seals them to the day of redemption and is the earnest of their inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In Romans 8.14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit disposition of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba Father the Spirit the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God so there's a sense of sonship there's a sense of being a part of the family of God the Apostle John presents this as an expression of God's love and the assurance of ultimate conformity to the person of Christ he says here he writes See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Well then, fourthly, the humiliation and death of Christ were a fitting means for God to accomplish salvation uh, because of the unique qualification of Christ, because of the unique qualification of Christ. It was fitting, it was necessary to perfect the author of salvation through suffering. As one wrote, in order to achieve this glorious goal, God fittingly makes Christ the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So our Lord's unique qualification here in bringing many sons to glory, it's brought out by, by two considerations, I think. First, he's referred to as, depending on what translation you have, he's referred to as the, the author of their salvation, and it can have various nuances of meaning. The King James, captain of your salvation. The ASV, pioneer of your salvation. ESV, founder of your salvation. Has the sense of trailblazer, William Lane, the champion that secures salvation. Peter O'Brien wrote, the nuance originator or initiator uh, seems to be demanded by the qualifier of their salvation. Clearly Christ has effected a deliverance, which his brothers and sisters or the many children could not achieve for themselves. He leads them along a path of glory and is able to save them completely. This is because he's already won for them an eternal redemption by his death and exaltation. 
Um, so whether we, we go with captain or author or pioneer or trailblazer, the emphasis, especially here, is on what only he could do as the, the I like the translation, the pioneer or the leader of our salvation. In 1969, um, anybody here remember when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon? You don't have to raise your hand. 1969. He was the first man in history to uh, set foot on the moon. Um, and in that sense, he was a pioneer. Uh, he was a trailblazer. Nobody ever did that before. Nevertheless, um, he was not the only one qualified to do that. There was a fellow with him by the name of Buzz Aldrin. He also could have done it. And there's others who would have been qualified to do that. So we have our Lord here as the pioneer of our salvation, but nobody else could have done it. He is the only one that's qualified to do it. And in the text says here, uh, uses the word perfect. Now, according to the lexicon that I employ, th- this word means um, to bring to an end, to accomplish, um, to make complete of its kind uh, without blemish. Now, to be made perfect through sufferings, it cannot mean that his suffering cured him of moral defects or increased his moral purity in any way. Um, I, I, I kind of um, struggle with this particular uh, section because most commentators see it as um, his sufferings prepared him to be a sympathetic high priest, which is certainly true. Uh, but the meaning of this term is to uh, complete or to achieve or, or, or to accomplish. And so what um, Simon Kistemaker wrote makes sense to me. The perfection of Jesus, therefore, it, it points to the work of salvation he performed on behalf of his people. It's to accomplish. It is to complete. And so it has reference to the work he performed on behalf of his people. He was a perfect sacrifice for sinners on behalf of his people. R.C.H. Linsky wrote, without suffering death as Jesus did, he would not have been a complete savior. He could not have brought all men to glory as God's sons. He had to come as the high priest with the blood atonement. Only the suffering Savior could say it was the Father's will that he drink the cup to be the prophet and the king was not enough. To be the high priest and to come with his blood and his death had to be added. So it was not enough that he was a priest. It was not enough that he was a king. Excuse me. It was not enough that he was a king. It's not enough that he was a prophet. He had to come as a high priest. He had to come with a blood atonement. And he was the blood atonement. And he completed the work when he was on the cross. He achieved the purposes of God when he died on the cross. And it's because of that achievement that we are accepted by God. The the, the clear, pure, holy achievement of Christ when he died on the cross. So you can wrestle with that one. But that's kind of where I'm at on it. Um, so the humiliation and the death of Christ were a fitting means for God to accomplish the salvation for his people. Um, this is because it comports with the character of God. It accomplishes the purpose of God. And it's in line with the unique qualification and accomplishment of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you might take what we have considered and apply it to our own hearts. And uh, we thank you that we have such a a great and pure and glorious Savior, uh, a Savior of sinners, a perfect Savior of sinners. We thank you for what our Lord went through to accomplish our salvation. We thank you for the reality of his sufferings in our stead and our behalf. And I pray that you might be pleased to just apply to our own hearts what we have considered this morning. I pray to increase our own love for Christ, our own devotion to him. We, We thank you that this salvation is of thee. We thank you for its um, 
perpetuity. We thank you that we are saved forever. We thank you that no one can ever snatch us from thy hand. And so I just pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our hearts and lives for your honor and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.